Happy New Year. Yeah, this is the first episode in 2022. What do you mean? It's 6 p.m. Well, no, the like first when it comes episode. Out. Oh, yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> yeah, we say Happy New Year and the episode comes out on like January 26th or something. <laughs> we have our intro right there. Got it. Organized crime. So we're talking about organized crime today. Organized crime. Yeah, we each have an organized crime group that we researched, and we're going to talk a bit about them. So with that in mind, uh, do either of you guys want to go first? Uh, I can go first. Yeah, that works with me. Okay. So, of course, being from Hong Kong, I pick the Hong Kong triads. They have a very, very interesting history. They originated in 18th century China during the Qing Dynasty. There were many secret societies back then. Uh, many of those were started by Ming Dynasty loyalists, and Ming Dynasty was uh, the dynasty previous to Qing. Those secret societies usually have the goals of restoring the Ming and overthrowing the Qing Dynasty. And then there are some other groups as well. Some like some of them are just normal communal group that kind of thing, but most of them had the goals of overthrowing the Qing Dynasty. One of those secret society was called Tian Di Hui or Heaven and Earth Society. They began as a group in the province of Fujian to fight local corruption, but. For financing their recruitment and further activities, they also did a lot of uh, robbing and pirating, and they're you know they're cool with it. Um, were they like after a few years? Sorry, were they like mm-hmm. Robin Hood? Like they steal the money and give it to the poor, kind of thing? No. <laughs> okay, so they're just nah, dicks. I just then, keep I guess. it themselves. I imagine they think they're very important and be like, oh, we know how to spend the money better than normal people know how to spend the money, and we spend the money to overthrow the Qing dynasty. But if you give these money to normal people, they're just going to buy bread. Like, that's how I imagine how they think. Okay. One of the ways I think they recruit people is by, like, helping them think that they're important. Maybe this is how gangs nowadays recruit people as well. It's like, you know, pick on lonely kids and then help them feel important, mm-hmm. and then they find a home, that kind of thing, mm. you know. So yeah, after a few years, they finally had enough money from robbing and pirating, and members went on the offensive, and then they quickly got defeated by the Qing army. After that, they were largely disbanded and went separate ways. Many individuals in that group began using the uh, Tian Di Hui organization model, and started recruiting themselves in their local region, and then began a lot of different, like even more, different secret societies. So Tian Di Hui is one that is singled out because they have kind of like their own special organization model. Like it's almost kind of like franchising a store. Like they're so good at it that people can just copy their model and then start a local group and then kind of spread it like that. So let's quickly talk about their organization model. The leader of a triad group is called the Dragon Head or the Mountain Master. Damn, that's badass. And yeah, that's pretty sick. And then one level down, we have the Deputy Mountain Master. <laughs> oh my god, what are these names? Like, this is incredible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Obviously, the Deputy Mountain Master is the Mountain Master's right hand. 
And then there's the Vanguard, which is their operational officer. And there's the uh, Incense Master, which is <laughs> kind of like their ceremonies officers. So, so this is what I mean by like they make people feel so important by giving them like these uh, nickname. And then one level down, one level further down, we have the white paper fan, which is their administrators. The red poles, which are their enforcers. And the straw sandals, which are their liaison officers. Straw sandals. Straw sandals. Love that. And in the lowest tier, we have the 49ers, which are <laughs> ordinary <laughs> members. The fucking 49ers. <laughs> <laughs> and then lastly we have the blue lanterns which are the uninitiated members so it's like associates if you talk about like mm. italian uh mafia so they have a lot of traditions and procedures and codes and other ways to make their organization feel more mythical and legendary so first the original Tandi Hui claimed their society was born in collaboration between Ming loyalists and the five surviving Shaolin monk after Qing loyal troop destroyed the temple in 1647, which is just total BS. Tandi Hui probably didn't exist back then, <laughs> like in 1600, probably didn't exist back then, probably started at around 1700. And also, this is just too fantastical. Like, there were some seven different accounts, written account of how Tian Di Hui was established. And the newer the account was, the more fantastical it was. And this was the original one, and it still sounds unbelievable. Anyways, they also have number codes for member of their groups. So this number code is based on, uh, on Yi Jing, which is an ancient Chinese spiritual book. The number for the Mountain Master is 489. There are reasons for it, and it's silly. Um, 438 for the Vanguard Deputy Master and the Incense Master. Like, they all have the same number. 415 for the White Paper Fan. 426 uh, are the Red Poles. 432 are the Straw Sandals. And 49 for 49ers. My boys. The reason for 49 is because uh, 4 times 9 is 36, and they had to recite 36 oaths when they are being initiated. Like, this is how silly those numbering system works, which is like 4 times 9, it's like 36. <laughs> That's very, a lot of like oaths to, to remember, man. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like it, a tough yeah. initiation. Yeah, like just just have them remembering, just just have to remember. Th- it's like a goddamn citizenship. It test. sounds like a bar mitzvah. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Like thirteen-year-old Jewish boys get like become a man. They have this huge celebration, and they have to uh, speak like Hebrew. For, like yeah, they have this, to read like, from the Torah. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, and they have to recite it. Well, yeah, and it's in Hebrew. I mean, you know, be a little different if he. Like, if you spoke Hebrew every day, but... But if you're just doing this for this one time... Yeah, yeah. I mean... (laughs) Imagine. I wouldn't want to learn, like, 20 pages of Hebrew. (laughs) Yeah, just to say it once. Yeah, yeah. Like, that would suck. 
it is kind of like that, and that's what I mean by like they do these things to make it feel so official, make it feel so legitimate. Yeah. Um, forty nine for the forty niners, of course, and the blue lanterns. They don't have a number, and uh, known undercover or whistleblower or spies from other triads have the number twenty five, which is now a slang term in Hong Kong for stitches, twenty fiver. Their induction ceremony has some really complicated procedures too. So you've got the usual stuff like animal sacrifice. Oh yeah, the usual sense. <laughs> the the Pretty usual standard. animal sacrifice. And new member, like I said, have to also recite thirty six oaths, and also they have other symbols and signs. So and they have also other gestures to communicate in secret. So yeah, like this just I feel like just really give themselves a sense of very like look at how important we are. We gotta like you know to join us. You gotta go through all these complicated process, and we have to like kill a goat for you or something. <laughs> you know, um, this is this is like a I feel like a main attraction kind of. So going back to Tian Di Hui and other groups. So those other local groups, they don't really have the original goal of restoring the Ming anymore. They just they just became like a local gang doing what local gang usually does, like you know, robberies, illegal gambling, mm. illegal prostitutes, you know, this and that. But some of them did continue trying to overthrow uh, the government, like the original Tian Di Hui. They assisted the Taiping Rebellion, and that is a revolution led by Hong Xiuquan, and. It's totally insane, which we just don't have the time to get into. But just one thing, Hong Xiaochuan, uh, the guy who started the revolution, he's <laughs> self-proclaimed younger brother of Jesus Christ. What? Yeah, like this Taiping revolution. They ended up started a, a kingdom in a big chunk of southeast China, and it's called what well, Heavenly Peace kingdom something like that and it's just total <laughs> it's a total insane civil war that many people died and it's just totally insane so yeah uh the term triad was first coined by scottish missionary dr william milner in 1821 referring to their superstitious use of the number three and uh throughout the existence of the triads and the secret societies, like ever since it existed back during the Qing Dynasty, they have been prosecuted by the authorities, and many of them fled to other places like Hong Kong, Singapore, and it was mainly around Southeast Asia. Like you know, they many of them went to Taiwan as well. But uh, when Communist China took charge, they really increased the effort of getting rid of these societies. So more so than ever. The triads had to go somewhere else. Hong Kong became the capital of the triads, and this is also why triads went abroad. Like why there are triads in Chinatown in Canada, why they're in Europe, mm. not because they were hella rich, but rather they were getting their ass kicked by the Communist Party. This is why they had to go somewhere else. <laughs> they're in exile <laughs> almost. Um, nowadays, triad groups are just like other organized crime. They're no longer loyal to any government or any like political idea. They're loyal to money now. Their main source of income since the days of the Qing Dynasty has always been drug trafficking. 
they would get opium plant from places like Myanmar, Laos, and Thailand, turn them into heroin in China, and then smuggle them to Europe. Also, very popular are you know illegal gambling, prostitution, contract killing, weapon trafficking, that kind of thing. And uh, another big one. Sick. <laughs> another big one is human trafficking, bringing illegal workers into the U.S. and Europe. And obviously, many victims would not make the journey and die. Jesus. While I say they're not loyal to any government or any political idea, obviously, you know, if any government contract them to do anything, they will do it. And one of the uh, incident that suspected Triad's involvement was just two years ago in July. I don't quite remember. In July, after an anti-government protest. A bunch of white shirt wearing people just showed up into a subway station and beat the crap out of everyone. Oh, I saw footage of this. Actually. Yeah, this was two years ago, and yeah, uh, so they do things like that, and they're very decentralized, despite you know having that kind of structure of Mountain Master, Deputy, and Red Pull this and that. Many of these triads, they have like so many subgroups that works more or less autonomously, and the two of the largest triads are Sun Yeon with sixty thousand members and Fourteen K with twenty five thousand members. We don't know for sure who is the mountain master of these groups, and Fourteen K is made up of thirty different subgroups, all fighting to be the leading group, and. Many triads operate similar to 14K, where subgroups often have complete autonomy, and is not required to consult with the mountain master. And sometimes they don't even need to share the profit within the greater organization. They just keep it within their subgroup. So yeah, that's the triads. Yeah, it's interesting. That was cool. Nice. Yeah, I just I love the titles of the people in the gang. Yeah, Mountain Master, Master, 49ers, the boys. So for my topic, I chose the Russian Mafia. And the Russian Mafia is like a very extensive topic just because Russian organized crime groups have been around for quite a long time and are uh, present in a lot of different countries. Like some of the first really famous Russian gangsters were actually based in New York City in the early 20th century. People like Meyer Lansky, for example. And um, actually, a lot of them were Russian Jewish, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, most of the mobsters didn't really have connections to like Russia itself. They were more so just like Russian immigrants who settled in America. So just like the Russian diaspora. So I just figured for this, I would focus on the main Russian mob that originated and exists within Russia instead of trying to cover like the many different Russian crime groups throughout the world. Because if I did that, my segment would be like eight hours long. The entire episode. It's just not worth that. Cut up into 10 parts. Yeah, it's exactly. So Russian organized crime dates back to the days of Tsarist Russia, but it was mainly just like thieves who would steal from the government and the wealthy. It wasn't like a super organized crime group. It was just crimes carried out by the peasants against the rich. And this type of criminal activity would continue on for the remaining years of the Russian Empire. And then, of course, there was the Russian uh, Revolution, 
and afterwards Lenin and Stalin tried to purge the nation of all the criminals. But organized crime still continued on a smaller scale. But the Russian mob mainly traces its roots back to Stalin's gulags in the 1930s. So there were like millions of prisoners in the gulags throughout the Soviet Union. And some were political prisoners while others were like common criminals. And within the gulags, the criminals created a kind of like a hierarchy and government amongst themselves. And this became known as the Thieves-in-Law. Basically, they had like a code of ethics and rules known as the Thieves' Code. And the rules were stuff like, you can't have any collaboration with the prison guards. You have to help the other thieves. You can't work with the government. Just basic Just basic like that. thieves are good and governments are poo-poo. Yeah, but it's like very like hardcore. They they also had like tattoos and stuff that would like Sick. signify your rank and experience. Um, kind of like the I know the yakuza has tattoos and stuff. Yeah, but I'll talk about that later. These tattoos are not. They don't look good at all because they were done from like within <laughs> prison. Like they look like <laughs> shit. Um, nice old prison stick and poke. Yeah, they were 1930s gulag stick and poke. Like I don't know if that'd be you would be like branded or something. Mm, but yeah. Um, but yeah. So there were specific tattoos. There was one like if you had stars on your knees, it wouldn't. It meant that you wouldn't go on your knees to the authorities, and you wouldn't like rat. So you could like decipher everything you needed to know about a prisoner by their tattoos and like the kind of person they were, which is kind of cool. But it got to the point where these guys were running like an underground crime ring within the gulags. So this was just like probably terrible for most of the other non-criminal inmates. I just like. Imagine being an ordinary prisoner in one of these gulags and like it already sucks because like you're in Siberia mining uranium or whatever. And now you have to deal with Ivan, uh, one of the thieves in law, and he wants to steal your oatmeal or whatever. Like it just like sounds horrible. Anyway, the thieves in law continued to operate and expanded beyond the gulags, but there weren't a lot of opportunities available for crime groups in the Soviet Union. It was just like the nature of Soviet society. You really couldn't commit high-scale crimes during this time. But this began to change in the 80s when uh, Gorbachev, the final leader of the Soviet Union, began passing more like capitalist reforms that allowed people to open private businesses because like being a communist country, everything was state-owned before. So now people could have independent businesses. And these reforms on private businesses created a big opportunity for Russian organized crime because now crime groups were able to establish like protection racket for small businesses and vendors and stuff. So yeah, there was organized crime in the Soviet Union, but it wasn't very prominent. But this all changed when the Soviet Union dissolved. The political climate of Russia... That's that's rather recent. Like, I I thought, like, being one of the biggest organized crime groups who have founded properly a long time ago, but, like, it sounded like it really started after. Nah, they're they're laying dormant, you know? (laughs) Just Just hanging out, waiting waiting for their turn. They knew what was going to happen. Like, as I mentioned before, there were Russian gangsters in, like, the States. But, yeah, Russian crime really doesn't start on like a big scale until the 90s which is kind of interesting so it's very like new in comparison to like the triads Mm -hmm. and yakuza that have been around for hundreds of years but um 
just the Soviet Union was like a paradise or like the post-Soviet Russia rather was a paradise for organized crime because there was um, the privatization of the Russian economy. So there were like a lot of opportunities for criminals because suddenly all of the Soviet Union's assets were up for grabs and there were like massive industries in Russia that were there for the taking. And it was just like a free for all. There was also like a lot of corruption in the Boris Yeltsin administration, who was Russia's first president and just like scandals surrounding the government. It was it was just like a mess. And around this time, the Russian mafia really emerged as a powerful group and they just sort of like capitalized on all the instability. So because of these rampant social issues, inflation and unemployment, there were a lot of former government people that were unemployed. So like ex-KGB members joined Mm. the mafia. Also a lot of disenfranchised veterans from the Soviet Afghan war joined these groups. And the UN actually estimated that there were over 3 million people involved in organized crime in 1995. That's pretty sick. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like just in Russia. So pretty wild. Damn, Um, large portion of the population. Yeah. So there's like a huge black market that arose around this time where all sorts of things were smuggled and sold. But as I mentioned before, there were industries that were up for grabs. For example, there was a dispute over the Russian aluminum industry in the 1990s. And there were like a bunch of different Russian oligarchs who emerged and tried to like gain control of the industry. And they used people from the Russian mafia to like assist them in their attempted takeovers. Um, This was called the aluminum wars. And just like crazy shit happened. Like aluminum factory workers and managers were assassinated. People were kidnapped. Uh, (laughs) Journalists were killed. It was was insane. So oligarchs like Oleg Daripaska, Alisher Uzmanov, and actually uh, Roman Abramovich, I was about to ask you that, yeah. The owner of Chelsea, they all took part in the aluminum wars. And by the end, Oleg Daripaska gained most of the control of the industry, but came at a price. And um, yeah, Abramovich actually even said that he was hesitant to join the industry because like um, someone was murdered every three days. (laughs) That's like actually what he said. So pretty crazy. Um, It's... Sometimes it's it's kind of like because we were all born after the Cold War and you know we're not really there the first few years we were born anyway mm-hmm. like we're not really aware of what's going on so it's like kind of shocking it's not shocking like yeah. if, for example I'm still kind of surprised to know that Gorbachev is still alive it's like I thought this was history <laughs> yeah. and then you brought up uh like. The Chelsea, the the owner of Chelsea. I was like, oh mm-hmm. right, yeah. You're still talking about these things that really only happened in the past twenty years. Oh yeah, like way more recent mm-hmm. than you would think. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so a lot of the mafia became like foot soldiers for the elites, forty niners, oligarchs, for the elites. Yeah, niners. <laughs> so there were a lot of debt collectors and enforcers and stuff, and there was actually this one enforcer in this documentary about the Russian mafia that I watched. And he described his method for getting people who were indebted to the mob to pay up. And basically what he would do is 
this is really fucked. He would take a homeless person from the street and he would like wash them up, give them a haircut, a nice shave and a suit. Sounds pretty sweet. Just wait. What a nice guy. Making them look like not homeless, basically. Then he would take them to, he would take the homeless person to the guy who owed money and he would behead the homeless person in front of the guy who owed money. And then he would say like, oh yeah, this is what happens to people who don't pay. Jeez. And the guy who owes uh, money doesn't know the person they killed is homeless. They just think it's like an average guy in a situation similar to them. So just like a disgusting tactic. But these are like, this is the kind of brutality we're dealing with. The first part of that sounds like one of those YouTube videos where they're like giving pizza to homeless guys <laughs> yeah. or something or like giving free haircuts to homeless guys. Yeah. But like the entire video is just about themselves. Yeah. You know. Showing how charitable they are. Yeah. Yeah, let, let me help homeless people with my camera. <laughs> maybe maybe that's what happens in the second part, and then we, we just don't see it. <laughs> God. Um, like, Mr. Well, Beast is actually... <laughs> <laughs> He's like a serial murderer. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, so it was around this time that the type of criminals in Russia also really changed. There was a lot more, like, white-collar crime than before. Because at first, the mafia was mostly just, like, low-income people on the fringes of society. But now there were, like, wealthy businessmen and government-affiliated criminals. So the thieves' code of ethics became less important in many ways. But the basic structure of the thieves and law continued to be prevalent. But one big business that the mafia was allegedly involved in was arms smuggling. Because there were just, like, huge stockpiles of weapons from right. the Soviet army. And a lot of them were sold off to countries and, like, armed groups. And um, they were also, not surprisingly, involved in drug trafficking. But, yeah, the mafia bosses that were active during the 90s, which was, like, the golden age for the Russian mafia, are, real, like, insanely rich. Like, they have, they have mansions in, like, the south of France and London, Paris... They drive expensive sports cars, probably, like, wealthier than any American criminal is or ever was. Like, these guys are really freaking rich. Sick. <laughs> um, That's the life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could join the Russian mafia, dude. Yeah. Um, so there were, like, a lot of wars over the control of Russia um, because there were different mafias from other regions. Like, there was the Chechen mafia. There was, like, the Moscow-based mafia. And this resulted in the Russian gang wars of the 1990s. And it was horrible. Like, there were murders daily. There was, like, car bombings. It was out of control. So, yeah, there are many... Just anarchy. Yeah, it was, It was like, nobody... It was chaos, and the government could do, like, nothing to even mitigate it, so... Yeah, you know. 90s Russia, oof, sounds like... Just the wild, wild west. Yeah, it's like really... The 90s Russia is the new early 20th century China. (laughs) (laughs) So there are a lot of separate Russian mafias, but the biggest one is Sultan Sveskaya Bratva. I'm just going to call it Bratva. It was founded by Sergei Mikhailov in the 80s, and it emerged as like the most prominent mafia they established themselves in brighton beach area of new york city which is like a predominantly russian borough in brooklyn 
they were also involved in like normal mob activities like racketeering and stuff like that but they got affiliated with the banking sector and they used these connections to like launder money and establish closer relations with the oligarchs so yeah these guys are a pretty big deal and are still quite active as far as i know so yeah there's just like a lot of secrecy about the russian mafia and its leaders as well but the most important figure in the russian mafia that we know of is this guy named uh, Semyon mogelevich and he's credited with the creation of like the basic structure of the modern russian mafia and uh yeah he's regarded as like the highest ranking crime boss in the russian mafia and he was even placed on the fbi's most wanted list at one point and his reach was like far beyond just russia like his influence over crime syndicates around the world is huge and this this guy had like so many schemes like it's actually ridiculous like <laughs> wasn't he caught in like hungary he was caught but he was like yeah released soon after yeah yeah i wasn't sure if that was the guy i was thinking about but i, I did watch like this little netflix documentary on him. He seemed pretty oh yeah my god like <laughs> so just a couple schemes he did he took place in the creation of a company called ybm magnex that was a company on the toronto stock exchange and it was literally just like a company that was dedicated to money laundering and criminal stuff and eventually the YBM headquarters was raided by the FBI. But he also did like money laundering schemes through the Bank of New York. And he also, also that's not where he also <laughs> allegedly was behind a scheme with the Italian American mafia where he offered to dispose of American toxic waste by dumping it in Russia. Like he was <laughs> planning on dumping it like around Chernobyl. And the and the Italian mafia would like pay him for it. But the scheme was, like, stopped by the FBI. It's, just, it's one of the stupidest schemes I've ever heard. But why would the Italian mob have any reason to have any toxic, <laughs> toxic waste, waste in their hand? What were they <laughs> doing? I don't know. Like, yeah, or, I, like, enough to ship it overseas. Not just overseas, but then, like, Ukraine. yeah, get it to Ukraine, man. That, that would be really expensive. That's what I was thinking. What were they doing? Like, were they treating water? Like, were they, like, generating nuclear power? Like, what were the yeah, Italian yeah, yeah. mob doing? They were doing? pouring it on the wolves that were already there. I'm just, like, picturing, like, Tony Soprano and Christopher <laughs> Moltisanti, like, <laughs> trying to get rid of this toxic waste. <laughs> Ho! Hey! But I guess if you're gonna leave any toxic... If you're gonna leave any toxic waste, of course, you, you know... Just put it in Chernobyl. Like, that place already fucked. Like, it doesn't matter. Just You know what would be funny, though? <laughs> like, you know how they have those Chernobyl tours where you can, like, go around <laughs> Chernobyl? You, you're just doing this tour, <laughs> and you've got the meter, like, t- you know, telling you whether the radiation level is safe. <laughs> yeah. And then you just see some dude pouring <laughs> Like a big old dump truck pouring out a bunch of Semyon Mogelovich driving a dump truck. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's awkward. Oh, <laughs> uh, shit. Um, yeah, anyway, Semyon Mogelovich is pretty fucked. And uh, he just lives in Russia now. Like, he's pretty much untouchable at this point. Like, he's free. But yeah, there's just, like, surprisingly little information about these guys online. Even for Mogelovich, like, very little is actually known about him. And I watched this documentary um, about the Russian mob, 
And one of the guys they interviewed in it was named, he was a mobster and his name was Leonid Bolognov. And I looked him up after and I found like no information about him aside from just like a few photos from him and from like the 90s. So I don't know if they like scrubbed the internet for information relating mm. to them or something, but it's very odd. That might be Putin. Yeah, Putin. He's he's covering his boys. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't want uh, the reputation of Russia tarnished by <laughs> goddamn Americans. <laughs> yeah, I just have a few more things. Um, so, the, yeah, the Russian mafia is really decentralized, not unlike the triads. Like, there isn't just one godfather or, like, mafioso who dictates absolutely everything. Even Mogilevich does not control everything. It's, like, typically it's, like, a council that makes mutually beneficial decisions and money is spread evenly within groups because these guys are, like, there's Russian mafias all throughout Europe, North America, uh, former Eastern Bloc countries, USSR. Like, they're pretty well, they have a presence, like, almost everywhere. And they are currently the biggest crime organization in the world. They bring in more money annually than any other crime group. And there are still like hundreds of thousands of members of the Russian mafia in Russia today. And they do drug trafficking. Their allegations, they're part of uh, human trafficking. They sell weapons. They lot basically any criminal activity that like you can possibly imagine, they take part in it in some way. And... <laughs> I just, I just still find it funny about the uh, toxic waste thing. <laughs> like, like, yeah, yeah, they, so you know, the, you know, they they do uh, drug trafficking, you know, weapon trafficking, trafficking toxic waste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the typical stuff, you know. One, one thing I would like, I'd be interested in finding out. I don't know, Duncan, if you know this, but uh, the big company Gazprom, which is a major. Yeah, Russian conglomerate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's state-sponsored, but it's also, like, uh, it has advertisements. One of the largest, like, UEFA Champions League yeah. sponsor. Like, you see it any time mm-hmm. you watch the Champions League. So, And I know, like, Abramovich is Affiliate. pretty closely tied to that. Yeah, so I wonder, like, with, uh, w- with that, like, maybe it was originated... Like, out of the Russian mafia or something. I don't know. All of these industries and oligarchs are really corrupt. So it would not surprise me at all. Yeah. Um, Probably have their hands in lots of industry. mm Mm-hmm. So, just to wrap up, there have been claims that Putin is complicit in some of the Russian mafia's activities. And this is, like, partially true. Putin definitely, like, turns a blind eye to some of these mobsters. I mean... Mugelovich lives in Russia and is free. So I like I think that is pretty telling. But <laughs> yeah. From what I could gather, like as long as the mafia's activities are not overlapping with Putin's interests or are just like super egregious, he isn't very concerned. But he has cracked down on some criminal syndicates though. Like when he was first in office, he took a hard he drew like a red line against uh, the rampant gang violence that was occurring. But he definitely does side with some of these guys. And it's a well-known fact that he allies with Russian oligarchs as well. And mm-hmm. we know that oligarchs have worked with the mafia and in general are just really sketchy. 
But yeah, Putin's relationship with the mafia is pretty complex. And one more thing that I would just say is if you're interested in this topic and you would want to learn more, I would really recommend watching the documentary Thieves by Law. It's a Russian documentary where they like interview Russian mobsters. And a lot of what I talked about on here was talked about in the documentary. So recommend that. But yeah, that's about it. All right. Well, so I'll start mine. I'm going to do this about this pretty, pretty small uh, family from New Jersey. Uh, and <laughs> uh, they're headed going? by uh, Tony Soprano. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm going to do the Yakuza. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah I'm going to do the Yakuza. They started in the Tokugawa Shogunate which was from 1603 to 1868, and they're still prevalent now. So a lot of them were from the Burakumin Bura, Bura <laughs> class. Sorry. This session uh, is going to be full of Seth just trying really hard to not mess it up. <laughs> yeah, on, yeah, and you know, I'm going to mess it Try up. Try your I'm best. Sorry. Try your best, and that's all you can do. I, and I am, and I am. Yeah, so a lot of them are from the Burakumin class, uh, which is actually under the four-tier caste system that uh, Japan worked, or that Japan had. Um, so after the Meiji Restoration, they were actually given somewhat of equality. But yeah, a lot of them originated from this class. So they do have this kind of like, this kind of like backs to the wall history but then also attitude where they're like for the people because they were actually marginalized when they came to being and they're under this extremely strict code of honor which relates to like samurai honor code one of the things that really interested me was the tattoos which are really cool like i mean really really cool and they started in the Edo period uh so even further back which kind of like relates to duncan's with the tattoos in prison so prisoners would be branded with tattoos and then you you were just known as a prisoner based on your tattoo but then after like once the yakuza kind of got going that just became their thing and they're actually beautiful like beautiful uh they used to be done with bamboo needles now oh my god that sounds painful yeah yeah i was watching a couple of videos like now they're done like with steel mostly but this isn't just you know you sit down for a little bit and get like live laugh love tattooed <laughs> on your wrist or something like this is like man you're gonna be here for a while um mo- most of the tattoo sessions are like days long but the vast majority can be covered. So they are like full body tattoos, but then there's like a bit that runs through your chest, kind of. If you were to wear a dress shirt, you wouldn't be able to see. Uh, and there's like no like hand tattoos, no neck tattoos, no face tattoos, but everywhere else, like totally visible. And they're, yeah, as I said, they're, they're so cool. Like, yeah, like a lot of koi, uh dragons 
that kind of jazz um and they're fully colored and all that so yeah i that was one of the things that really interested me tattoo is in, in japan it's like almost exclusively done to the yakuza only so when i was in japan i was i heard that uh like because you know other tourists may have tattoos, right? So when right. they go to hot spring, they will have to put tape over it. Like they will have, they will yeah. cover it just so like you know other people, the local, won't think they are like you know part of the yakuza or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, like like the yakuza, they have their own bathhouses because mm-hmm. they're not allowed into like regular bathhouses, which is part of the crackdown which i'll get into later another interesting tradition is the yubitsume which is cutting off of fingers so this one yeah it's it's kind of cool well i mean (laughs) i like you know i don't really want my finger cut off but but it's it's interesting because it came out of like the samurai era where if you got part of your finger cut off then you wouldn't be able to use your sword as well Mm. as someone with all their fingers right so from what i can tell you get like half your finger cut off first your pinky and then if you do it again then you know you get your full pinky cut off and then you know after that oh jeez man (laughs) (laughs) yeah come on now but um (laughs) Yeah, so it a lot of it is just okay. Yeah, you can't hold your sword sword as well. But I do like have yeah like a personal story. Not that I was in Japan, but this guy that was friends with my roommate in fourth year, he was like on vacation or not on vacation, but he came back to Ontario and he just like came out on a night out with us. But he was living in Japan and teaching English there, and he was saying like, you know, if you get caught with drugs there you better get caught by the police and not the yakuza because yeah you don't you don't want to get caught by them like that's that's That's... just you know game over so that was that was the the like first thing i really knew about the yakuza that's kind of chilling yeah yeah i I heard about that i was like damn that's that's kind of sketch man holy but um yeah anyways or, or maybe, uh, maybe uh, you know, one could interpretate and think that the Yakuza are doing the good thing by really doing the bad things to the normal and ordinary criminals, but no. Well, that's actually, uh, that's actually one of the reasons they survived for so long was because they were seen in Japan as like almost a necessary evil by oh, okay. cutting out, you know, just like petty small time crooks that are, you know, like robbing old ladies purses and 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 that kind of jazz you know or like lots of you know street violence and uh drug related crimes because part of the honor code is actually quite anti-drug even (sighs) though they can make a lot of money like i was i was watching a documentary and one of the bosses was saying like yeah yeah that's one of the biggest things about us is we're anti-drug and this new generation is not honoring the codes yeah so going a little further back the yakuza were extremely right wing and they helped uh like there's like an assassination of the korean queen uh i forget what year it was sorry but they were involved in that 
they've assassinated like other politicians that have been left wing or whatever and supported right wing politicians but they really started thriving after world war Two when japan was kind of brought to its knees and really like through sanctions and whatnot had nothing and kind of kind of like the russian mafia they just thrived with this huge black market opportunity and kind of came in with gambling prostitution loan sharking the country wasn't like stable enough to like stop it right yeah yeah exactly and so that's how they kind of rose to power and one of the people that really profited or really you know like made a name for himself was taoka kazuo who was the head of the yamaguchi gang sorry yamaguchi gumi gang and they are the largest in uh in the yakuza they actually like account for half of the yakuza right now um and they're basing kobe in japan and he's a pretty interesting character he like kind of got them going after this yeah second world war um he was also extremely right wing and he was called the godfathers of all godfathers and he was also nicknamed kuma which means bear because he would claw his enemy's eyes out uh yeah like with like with his bare hands with his bare hands he would have his nails long so he'd claw these people's eyes (laughs) i can't imagine that uh he also killed a couple people with like typical samurai swords um and he was also in charge during the most violent period of the yakuza or the modern day yakuza in 1960s and 70s when there was like a large power struggle he was actually shot in a nightclub in the neck but he ended up surviving and then he died of a heart attack i think in the 70s sorry i don't have that exact exactly with me but then his wife fumiko became the boss right after and yeah i mean guy's kind of interesting (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one way to put it yeah um but taking out somebody's eyeball just seems a bit man i don't know yeah, dude psycho have... dude psycho have some class you know just behead homeless people like yeah. A... <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the period i was just talking about was the most violent in yakuza history but i mean compared to america crime related deaths are just like puny like i mean japan's one of the most (laughs) safe places to live in the world really Mm -hmm. and so the viewing of the kuza as like a necessary evil was really prevalent up until quite recently actually because you know the statistics spoke for themselves as yeah, like i i imagine like normal ordinary people who are not involved in any like high stake business would just be like well, it doesn't seem that bad to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't get, aren't bothered by it, right? So. Yeah. I think during the height of the violence, uh, there were about four civilians who got killed, which, I mean, that's just a regular day in, like, Detroit or <laughs> L.A., you know? <laughs> New York. Like, that's a casual day. But, yeah, so so I think, I, I think that just kind of goes to show, like, why they're 
quite respected. Uh, I know one of, one of the bosses was talking about, yeah, like, you just don't interfere in uh, civilian life. But they sound so um, professional. They like it's yeah, always they they really do. And efficient. It's like because I suppose like, you know, civilians dying is I uh, you can say that as as like a sign of inefficiency. And you know, the less yeah. civilians dying the better it is. So they Yeah. They sound like they're really in it for the money and not really care about hurting. <laughs> well, I think I think yeah, like the honor code it seems like in other gangs, it's like, oh, yeah, man, this honor code. And then it's like, oh, what'd you say about my mom? And then yeah. bam, bam, bam. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think nice. it's as, they you know. Really, they claim there's an honor code, but, like, they will not follow it most of the time. Whereas the Yakuza do genuinely seem like they're bound by it. And mm. they actually care about their honor and following the rules and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So during the power struggle, there were, like, 25 people dead and 500 arrests you know like like that's 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 minuscule as nothing and those 25 were gang members so this is like the the pinnacle of violence for the yamaguchi <laughs> uh the yeah yamaguchi it really Union. is just you know another day in detroit or that's yeah. like you know like a, a normal week in 90s russia <laughs> 25 deaths um but yeah, like, uh, at the same time, I don't want to understate, like, yeah, and how... And, and also, they're definitely not the good guy. <laughs> no, no, no. That Yeah, yeah. We, we really are kind of, like, getting into this gray area where we don't want to praise them. But at the same time, as far as, you know, uh, as far as crime syndicates things, goes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, recently, they've had a lot of issues, not unlike a lot of organized crime, uh, especially in like the United States and whatnot, it it's just not that cool to be <laughs> to be a yakuza anymore. There were a lot of a lot of laws put in place to stop the yakuza from prospering. So after they set up various like gambling and loan sharking, prostitution rings, all that jazz, after the Second World War, after they did that. Uh, they started getting into real estate, um, sumo wrestling, entertainment, nightclubs, all that kind of like stuff. Like, they want to go legitimate? Yeah, yeah, legitimate business. Like, But then they were also in, like, real businesses, and they'd, like, be on the board <laughs> for, like, oh, these, God. yeah, like, legitimate businesses. But then they would just take a cut and also blackmail the people, <laughs> the other people on oh the God. board. <laughs> Which is uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, there must have been some interesting board meetings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. But, um, so, yeah, they wanna, the... so they want to go legitimate, but their way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's the 1995 Act for Prevention of Unlawful Activities. And that's just, a, like, one bit of, like, a long series of legislation that is anti-Yakuza. And it's really hard to become a, or to be a Yakuza right now. You can't get, like, a cell phone plan. You can't go into bathhouses, as I was saying. You can't be, like, associated with a golf course. I mean... What? 
Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's very hard. Like I, I think it's tough to get a credit card. I mean, wait, just, but, but, I, but you're not, but wait, like these members, are they just telling people that they're part of the Yakuza? Like, why are they doing that? Like, can, well, can you just say you're not? They were like quite transparent that they were Yakuza. Like they would have their office and it would literally just say, like, Yakuza. Yakuza branch, <laughs> uh, number like three or whatever, you know? Like, a, 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 they were trying to be subtle or anything. No, but because they had such a, like, a, a, a good standing, like, like, they had a good thing going on, right? Like, only recently have they been banned from handing out Halloween candy to children. <laughs> like, that was, like, a really big thing. All right, yeah, go go to the Yakuza headquarters. <laughs> and get some candy. Yeah, and, uh, and and get it from the bear who uh, who might claw <laughs> your eyes out. Mister, can I have more candy? <laughs> Fuck up, <laughs> I suppose they they're really successful in this, you know, winning over the people kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent, but I think now. It's become rather obsolete. I mean, their membership has halved from in 2006, it was 87,000 people. And before it was much more. And in 2020, there were 14,400 members and then 13,800 associates, which is pretty small, especially considering Mm -hmm. Japan's population. And then also... Like, I think one of the most worrying things for the Yakuza themselves is over half of Yakuza is over 50. Mm. So most of the people in Yakuza are extremely old. And there's just, you know, a bunch of pensioners being like, Well, back in my day, we had the samurai honor code. <laughs> so it's like... I mean, once those guys are gone, it's like, I don't know. Yeah. Could the Yakuza possibly just cease to exist? Well, I mean, yeah, like... like has it, like, the education system, like, made it so that it, like, kind of teaches the culture and make the kids really not like Yakuza? I think that's a big thing, but also, it's just really not that profitable to be a Yakuza anymore. I suppose, yeah, like, you can just be a TikTok influencer instead. Like, why <laughs> yeah, be a Yakuza? Yeah. Or, I mean, if you wanted to get into crime, just be a hacker, like... <laughs> I, mean, I, like I like how we're giving career advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to any kids listening out there. But another thing is, like, a lot of people don't really want to go through the initiation. So when you're in your 20s uh, and you're just kind of, like, rising through the ranks, you have to go through this big initiation. And there's a documentary I was watching where um <laughs> i just know this is gonna be so funny. <laughs> um one of the like younger yakuza members like they were following the boss around and they're just at his house which didn't even seem that nice but um the like apprentice or whatever um was pretty much just like his slave he was just doing whatever the oyaban which means boss um the direct translation is foster parent um but okay 
But, uh, yeah, this guy, like, they interviewed him, and he's like, uh, yeah, this, I mean, essentially, he's like, this kind of sucks, but, <laughs> uh, I love my Oyabon, and he was talking about his day, and it's like, he's basically just like, yeah, man, I just clean all day and do whatever the Oyabon tells me. I thought it was me. gonna be like, you have to have a duel with somebody with a samurai. Nah, 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 cool, nah. Something nah. cool, it's, that's pretty lame. Nah, no, it, it was pretty lame and depressing. I mean, he's literally just, like, cleaning the house. He wakes up at, like, six, cooks the Oyabon breakfast, and, like, lights his cigarettes <laughs> and stuff. He's his nanny, basically. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But then the Oyabon is like... Oh yeah, but I did that when I was young and like okay, I mean yeah, I would not want to go through that either as a 20 something years old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you're wasting it's it's like like 2 to 3 years, you know. Like, 2 to 3 years. Yeah, yeah. Oh what? I was I was yeah. about to ask how long is this like, like 2 to 3 months? Days. No, 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 no. Yeah, you you're in your apprenticeship for like 2 to 3 years where you're you're literally just a servant to the Oyabon. Yeah, fuck that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not very appealing, not very profitable, but an interesting part of, like, modern-day Yakuza is uh, they were actually the first responders for the Kobe earthquake. Oh, I heard about this. Yeah, and they... Like, this is kind of, yeah, where you really kind of have to praise the Yakuza because although definitely there's part of it where it's just like, oh, yeah, they're trying to show off for the cameras and have a good PR. They were actually the first responders because bureaucratic bullshit meant that the Japanese government really didn't act quick. Like they were, they were the first on the scene. Like they brought a bunch of water and food, all this aid. And yeah, they were the only ones there. They actually cleaned the Royal princess. I think it was called uh, the, the COVID cruise ship. I don't know if you guys oh, remember yeah, that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I cannot imagine, say, the Russian mob or the triads ever do things like this. Like, imagine, no. like, there's a there's a crisis <laughs> in Moscow, and then, like, you know, oh, the Russian mobs are here to help. <laughs> well, it's, yeah. it's actually a little-known fact, but do you know who cleaned up the nuclear waste in Japan? <laughs> It was uh, it was Simeon Mogilevich actually. <laughs> yeah, he, he brought the toxic waste to Ukraine. <laughs> he just loves dumping toxic waste in Chernobyl. Yeah, um, but yeah, that that kind of just goes to the to the Robin Hood thing. The last yeah. thing I wanted to say was the Yakuza actually stands for a losing hand in an ancient Chinese card or sorry Japanese card game. Ya is eight, Ku is nine, and Za is three, and that's the worst hand you can get. Is it like because there are people like on the fringes of society? Yeah, because they're like a, a well, a low caste, like they weren't even in the caste yeah. system. <laughs> um, so they're like the losers. Yeah. The people who dealt a losing hand. Yeah, no, they really did kind of adopt that kind of mindset, but then they were also. Like, the other definition is problem solver. So, they solved the problems in uh, the Kobe earthquake and other crises in Japan. So, necessary evil or straight-up evil, you decide. Bunch of good lads, I think. (laughs) Yeah, some cool tattoos. I'm I'm, I'm Team Yakuza. (laughs) Yeah, all right. I mean, compared to the other two. Yeah. They, yeah. They definitely do come across more sympathetic, I would say. 
Yeah, spe- like I think that is really the the biggest thing that kind of draws sympathy is yeah, like they have their own little world and that's it. You know, like as long as you don't get yourself involved in it and you don't owe the money, don't do drug. Yeah, yeah, you're fine. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're not just gonna like, like walk like as a tourist go into Japan and like walk down the wrong street and then <laughs> oh boom, you Yaku- like you just end up in Yakuza crossfire. Like that doesn't really happen. Whereas yeah, you know, you walk through L.A. and then, bam, bam, Chicago, bam, 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 Moscow. <laughs> yeah. Anything else anyone want to add? Happy New Year. <laughs> this probably won't even come out until the 14th. <laughs> right. That's all good, though. Well, yeah. Still, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And we'll come back with, we Something don't know yet, sick. Something, something cool. Sick. We got to come up with better outro so shit. Say, <laughs> see you yeah. next time on see you next Shallow time. Dive. Bye. On Shallow Dive.